0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Alarms and Discursions by G. K. Chesterton. Chapters four through six. Chapter four. The Telegraph Poles my friend and i were walking in one of those wastes of pine wood which make inland seas of solitude in every part of western europe which have the true terror of the desert since they are uniform and so one may lose their way in them stiff straight and similar stood up all around us the pines of the wood like the pikes of a silent mutiny there is a truth in talking of the varieties of nature. But I think that nature often shows her chief strainedness in her sameness. There is a weird rhythm in this very repetition. It is as if the earth were resolved to repeat a single shape until the shape shall turn terrible. Have you ever tried the experiment of saying some plain word such as dog thirty times? By the thirtieth time, its become a word like snark or pobble does not become tame; it becomes wild by repetition in the end, a dog walks about as startling and undecipherable as a leviathan or a crocometaine. It may be that this explains the repetitions in nature. It may be for this reason that there are so many million leaves and pebbles, perhaps they are not repeated so that they may grow familiar. Perhaps they are repeated only in the hope that they may at last grow unfamiliar. Perhaps a man is not startled at the first cat he sees, but jumps into the air with surprise at the seventy-ninth cat. Perhaps he has to pass through thousands of pine trees before he finds the one that is really a pine tree. However this may be, there is something singularly thrilling even something urgent and intolerant, about the endless forest repetitions. There is the hint of something like madness in that musical monotony of the pines. I said something like this to my friend, and he answered with sardonic truth, Ah, you wait till we come to a telegraph post. My friend was right, as he occasionally is in our discussions, especially upon points of fact. We had crossed the pine forest by one of its paths which happened to follow the wires of the provincial telegraphy, and though the poles occurred at long intervals, they made a difference when they came. The instant we came to the straight pole, we could see that the pines were not really straight. It was like a hundred straight lines drawn with schoolboy pencils, all brought to judgment suddenly by one straight line drawn with a ruler all the amateur lines seemed to reel to right and left a moment before i could have sworn they stood as straight as lances now i could see them curved and waver everywhere like scimitars and yatagans. compared with the telegraph post the pines were crooked and alive that lonely vertical rod at once deformed and enfranchised the forest it tangled it all together and yet made it free like any grotesque undergrowth of oak or holly. "'Yes,' said my gloomy friend, answering my thoughts. "'You don't know what a wicked, shameful thing straightness is, "'if you think these trees are straight. "'You never will know till your precious intellectual civilization "'builds a forty-mile forest of telegraph poles.' "'We had started walking from our temporary home "'later in the day than we had intended,' and the long afternoon was already lengthening itself out into a yellow evening when we came out of the forest on to the hills above a strange town or village of which the lights had already begun to glitter in the darkening valley the change had already happened which is the test and definition of evening i mean that while the sky seemed still as bright the earth was growing blacker against it especially at the edges the hills and the pine tops this brought out yet more clearly the owlish secrecy of pine woods and my friend cast a regretful glance at them as he came out under the sky then he turned to the view in front and as it happened one of the telegraph poles stood up in front of him in the last sunlight it was no longer crossed and softened by the more delicate lines of pine wood it stood up ugly arbitrary and angular as any crude figure in geometry. My friend stopped, pointing his stick at it, and all his anarchic philosophy rushed to his lips. Demon, he said to me briefly, hold your work. That palace of proud trees behind us is what the world was before you civilized men, Christians or Democrats or the rest came to make it dull with your dreary rules of morals and equality. In the silent fight of the forest, tree fights speechless against tree, branch against branch, and the upshot of that dumb battle is inequality and beauty. Now lift up your eyes and look at equality and ugliness. See how regularly the white buttons are arranged on that black stick, and defend your dogmas if you dare. Is that telegraph post so much a symbol of democracy, I asked? I fancy that while three men have made the telegraph to get dividends, about a thousand men have preserved the forest to cut wood. But if the telegraph pole is hideous, as I admit, it is not due to doctrine, but rather to commercial anarchy. If anyone had a doctrine about a telegraph pole, it might be carved in ivory and decked with gold. Modern things are ugly because modern men are careless, not because they are careful. No, answered my friend, with his eye on the end of the splendid and sprawling sunset. There is something intrinsically deadening about the very idea of a doctrine. A straight line is always ugly. Beauty is always crooked. These rigid posts at regular intervals are ugly because they are carrying across the world. The real message of democracy. At this moment, I answered, they are probably carrying across the world the message by Bulgarian rails. They are probably the prompt communication between some two of the wealthiest and wickedest of his children with whom God has ever had patience. No, these telegraph poles are ugly and detestable. They are inhuman and indecent. But their baseness lies in their privacy, not in their publicity that black stick with white buttons is not the creation of the soul of a multitude it is the mad creation of the souls of two millionaires at least you have to explain answered my friend gravely how it is that the hard democratic doctrine and the hard telegraphic outline have appeared together you have but bless my soul we must be getting home i had no idea it was so late let me see I think this is our way through the wood. Come, let us both curse the telegraph pole for entirely different reasons, and get home before it is dark. We did not get home before it was dark. For one reason or another, we had underestimated the swiftness of twilight and the suddenness of night, especially in the threading of thick woods. When my friend, after the first five minutes' march, had fallen over a log, and I, ten minutes after, had stuck nearly to the knees in mire. we began to have some suspicion of our direction. At last, my friend said in a low, husky voice, I'm afraid we're on the wrong path. It's pitch dark. I thought we went the right way, I said, tentatively. Well, he said, and then, after a long pause, I can't see any telegraph poles. I've been looking for them. So have I, I said, they're so straight. We groped away for about two hours of darkness in the thick of the fringe of the trees, which seemed to dance round us in derision. Here and there, however, it was possible to trace the outline of something just too erect and rigid to be a pine tree. By these we finally felt our way home, arriving in a cold green twilight before dawn. CHAPTER V. A DRAMA OF DOLLS In a small grey town of stone in one of the great Yorkshire Dales, which is full of history, I entered a hall and saw an old puppet play, exactly as our father saw it five hundred years ago. It was admirably translated from the old German, and was the original tale of Faust, the dolls were at once comic and convincing, but if you cannot at once laugh at a thing and believe in it, you have no business in the Middle Ages or in the world for that matter. The puppet play in question belongs, I believe, to the fifteenth century, and indeed the whole legend of Dr. Faustus as the colour of that grotesque but somewhat gloomy time. It is very unfortunate that we so often know a thing that is past only by its tail end. We remember yesterday only by its sunsets. There are many instances. One is Napoleon. We always think of him as a fat old despot ruling Europe with a ruthless military machine. But that, as Lord Rosenberry would say, was only the last phase, or at least the last but one. During the strongest and most startling part of his career, the time that made him immortal, Napoleon was a sort of boy, and not a bad sort of boy either, bullet-headed and ambitious, but honestly in love with a woman, and honestly enthusiastic for a cause, the cause of French justice and equality. Another instance is the Middle Ages, which we also remember only by the odor of their ultimate decay. We think of the life of the Middle Ages as a dance of death, full of devils and deadly sins, lepers and burning heretics. But this was not the life of the Middle Ages, but the death of the Middle Ages. It is the spirit of Louis XI and Richard III, not of Louis IX and Edward I. This grim, but not unwholesome, fable of Dr. Faustus, with its rebuke to the mere arrogance of learning, is sound and stringent enough, but it is not a fair sample of the medieval soul at its happiest and sanest. The heart of the true Middle Ages might be found far better, for instance, in the noble tale of Tannhauser, in which the dead staff broke into a leaf and flower to rebuke the pontiff who had declared even one human being beyond the strength of sorrow and pardon. But there were in the play two great human ideas which the medieval mind never lost its grip on, the heaviest nightmares of its dissolution. They were the two great jokes of medievalism, as they are the two eternal jokes of mankind. Wherever these two jokes exist, there is little health and hope. Wherever they are absent, pride and insanity are present. The first is the idea that the poor man ought to get the better of the rich man. The other is the idea that the husband. Is afraid of the wife i have heard that there is a place under the knee which when struck should produce a sort of jump and that if you do not jump you are mad i am sure that there are some such places in the soul when the human spirit does not jump with joy at either of those two old jokes the human spirit must be struck with incurable paralysis there is hope for people who have gone down into the hells of greed and economic oppression, at least I hope there is, for we are such a people ourselves. But there is no hope for a people that does not exult in the abstract idea of the peasant scoring off the prince. There is hope for the idle and the adulteress, for the men that desert their wives and the men that beat their wives, but there is no hope for men who do not boast that their wives bully them. The first idea, the idea about the man at the bottom coming out on top, is expressed in this puppet play in the person of Dr. Faust's servant, Casper. Sentimental old tones, regretting the feudal times, sometimes complain that in these days Jack is as good as his master, but most of the actual tales of the feudal times turn on the idea that Jack is much better than his master, and certainly it is so in the case of Caspar and Faust. The play ends up with the damnation of the learned and illustrious doctor, followed by a cheerful and animated dance by Caspar, who has been made watchman of the city. But there was a much keener stroke of medieval irony earlier in the play. The learned doctor has been ransacking all the libraries of earth to find a certain rare formula, now almost unknown by which he can control the infernal deities. At last he procures the one precious volume, opens it at the proper page, and leaves it on the table while he seeks some other part of his magic equipment. The servant comes in, reads off the formula, and immediately becomes an emperor of the elemental spirits. He gives them a horrible time, He summons and dismisses them alternately with the rapidity of a piston-rod working at high speed. He keeps them flying between the doctor's house and their own more unmentionable residences, till they faint with rage and fatigue. There is all the best of the Middle Ages in that, the idea of the great levelers, luck and laughter, the idea of a sense of humor defying and dominating hell. One of the best points in the play as performed in this Yorkshire town, was that the servant Casper was made to talk Yorkshire, instead of the German rustic dialect which he talked in the original. That also smacks of the good air of that epic. In those old pictures and poems, they always made things living by making them local. Thus, queerly enough, the one touch that was not in the old medieval version was the most medieval touch of all. That other ancient and Christian jest, that a wife is a holy terror, occurs in the last scene, where the doctor, who wears a fur coat throughout to make him seem more offensively rich and refined, is attempting to escape from the avenging demons, and meets his old servant in the street. The servant obligingly points out a house with a blue door, and strongly recommends Dr. Faustus to take refuge in it. My old woman lives there, he says, and the devils are more afraid of her than you are of them. Faustus does not take this advice, but goes on meditating and reflecting, which had been his mistake all along, until the clock strikes twelve, and dreadful voices talk Latin in heaven. So Faustus in his fur coat is carried away by little black imps, and serve him right for being an intellectual." CHAPTER Six: THE MAN AND HIS NEWSPAPER At a little station, which I decline to specify, somewhere between Oxford and Guildford, I missed a connection or miscalculated a route in such manner that I was left stranded for rather more than an hour. I adore waiting at railway stations, but this was not a very sumptuous specimen. There was nothing on the platform except the chocolate automatic machine, which eagerly absorbed pennies, but produced no corresponding chocolate, and a small paper stall with a few remaining copies of a cheap imperial organ, which we will call the Daily Wire. It does not matter which imperial organ it was, as they all say the same thing. Though I knew it quite well already, I read it with gravity as I strolled out of the station and up the country road. It opened with the striking phrase that The radicals were setting class against class. It went on to remark that nothing had contributed more to making our empire happy and enviable to create that obvious list of glories which you can supply for yourself, the prosperity of all classes in our great cities, our populous and growing villages, the success of our rule in Ireland, etc., etc., than the sound Anglo-Saxon readiness of all classes in the state to work heartily hand in hand. It was this alone, the paper assured me, that had saved us from the horrors of the French Revolution. It is easy for the radicals, it went on very solemnly, to make jokes about the dukes. Very few of these revolutionary gentlemen have given to the poor one half of the earnest thought, tireless unselfishness, and truly Christian patience that are given to them by the great landlords of this country. We are very sure that the English people, with their sturdy common sense, will prefer to be in the hands of English gentlemen rather than in the miry claws of socialist buccaneers. Just when I had reached this point, I nearly ran into a man. Despite the populousness and growth of our villages, he appeared to be the only man for miles. But the road up which I had wandered turned and narrowed with equal abruptness, and I nearly knocked him off the gate on which he was leaning. I pulled up to apologize, and since he seemed ready for society, and even pathetically pleased with it, I tossed the daily wire over a hedge, and fell into speech with him. He wore a wreck of respectable clothes, and his face had that plebeian refinement, which one sees in small tailors and watchmakers, in poor men of sedentary trades. Behind him a twisted group of winter-trees stood up as gaunt and tattered as himself but I do not think that the tragedy that he symbolised was a mere fancy from the spectral wood there was a fixed look in his face which told that he was one of those who in keeping body and soul together have difficulties not only with the body but also with the soul he was a cockney by birth and retained the touching accent of those streets from which I am an exile but he had lived nearly all his life in this countryside and he began to tell me of the affairs of it in that formless tale-foremost way in which the poor gossip about their great neighbours names kept coming and going in the narrative like charms or spells unaccompanied by any biographical explanation in particular the name of somebody called sir joseph multiplied itself with the omnipresence of a deity i took sir joseph to be the principal landowner of the district AND AS THE CONFUSED PICTURE UNFOLDED ITSELF, I BEGAN TO FORM A DEFINITE AND BY NO MEANS PLEASING PICTURE OF SIR JOSEPH. HE WAS SPOKEN OF IN A STRANGE WAY, FRIGID AND YET FAMILIAR, AS A CHILD MIGHT SPEAK OF A STEPMOTHER OR AN UNAVOIDABLE NURSE, SOMETHING INTIMATE, BUT BY NO MEANS TENDER, SOMETHING THAT WAS WAITING FOR YOU BY YOUR OWN BED AND BOARD, THAT TOLD YOU TO DO THIS AND forbade YOU TO DO THAT, WITH A CAPRICE THAT WAS COLD and yet somehow personal. It did not appear that Sir Joseph was popular, but he was a household word. He was not so much a public man as a sort of private god or omnipotence. The particular man to whom I spoke said he had been in trouble, and that Sir Joseph had been pretty hard on him. And under that grey and silver cloud-land, with a background of those frost-bitten and wind-tortured trees, the little Londoner told me a tale which, true or false, was as heart-rending as Romeo and Juliet. He had slowly built up in the village a small business as a photographer, and he was engaged to a girl at one of the lodges, whom he loved with passion. I'm the sort that had better marry, he said, and for all his frail figure I knew what he meant. But Sir Joseph, and especially Sir Joseph's wife, did not want a photographer in the village. It made the girls vain, or perhaps they disliked this particular photographer. He worked and worked until he had just enough to marry on, honestly. And almost on the eve of his wedding the lease expired, and Sir Joseph appeared in all his glory. He refused to renew the lease, and the man went wildly elsewhere. "'But Sir Joseph was ubiquitous, and the whole of that place was barred against him. "'In all that country he could not find a shed in which to bring home his bride. "'The man appealed and explained, but he was disliked as a demagogue as well as a photographer. "'Then it was as if a black cloud came across the winter sky, for I knew what was coming.' I forgot even in what words he told of nature maddened and set free, but I still see, as in a photograph, the grey muscles of the winter trees, standing out like tight ropes, as if all nature were on the rack. She had to go away, he said. Wouldn't her parents, I began, and hesitated on the word forgive? Oh, her people forgave her, he said, but her ladyship? "'Her ladyship made the sun and moon and stars,' they said impatiently. "'So, of course, she can come between a mother and the child of her body. "'Well, it does seem a bit ard,' he began, with a break in his voice. "'But, good Lord, man,' I cried, "'it isn't a matter of hardness, "'it's a matter of impious and indecent wickedness. "'If your Sir Joseph knew the passions he was playing with, "'he did you a wrong, for which in many Christian counties "'he would have a knife in him.' The man continued to look across the frozen fields with a frown. He certainly told his tale was real resentment, whether it was true or false, or only exaggerated. He was certainly sullen and injured, but he did not seem to think of any avenue of escape. At last he said, "'Well, it's a bad world. Let's hope there's a better one.' "'Amen,' I said. But when I think of Sir Joseph, I understand how men have hoped there was a worse one. Then we were silent for a long time, and felt the cold of the day crawling up and At last, I said abruptly, "The other day, at a budget meeting, I heard he took his elbows off the stile and seemed to change from head to foot like a man coming out of sleep with a yawn. He said in a totally new voice, louder but much more careless, "Ah, uh, yes, sir, this is your budget. The uh, radicals are doing a lot of arm." i listened intently and he went on he said with a sort of careful precision setting class against class that's what i call it why what's made our empire except the readiness of all classes to work ardly and in and he walked a little up and down the lane and stamped with a cold then he said what i say is what else kept us from the errors of the french revolution my memory is good and i waited intense eagerness for the phrase that came next they may laugh at dukes. I'd like to see em half as kind as Christian and patient as lots of the landlords are. Let me tell you, sir, he said, facing round at me with a final air of one launching a paradox. The English people have some common sense, and they'd rather be in the hands of gentlemen than in the claws of a lot of socialist thieves. I had an indescribable sense that I ought to applaud, as if... I were a public meeting. The insane separation in the man's soul between his experience and his ready-made theory was but a type of what covers quarter of England. He turned away, I saw the Daily Wire sticking out of his shabby pocket. He bade me farewell in a quiet blaze of catchwords and went stumping up the road. I saw his figure grow smaller and smaller in the great green landscape even as the free man has grown smaller and smaller in the english countryside end of chapters 4 through 6